Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. So last month, we looked at this perspective of love that is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, what is the definition of love? Well, Paul gives us a great definition of love in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 4 through 8, 4 through 7. And the first part of that chapter, of that verse, is this. Love is patient. So last month... When we were looking at the patient love of God, we were looking at his agape love, if you remember. Some of you missed the weather was horrible this past month. But we looked at God's agape love, and the definition of agape love is unconditional, sacrificial, and selfless love. That's the kind of love that's able to be patient in every circumstance and in every situation. This week, or this month, starting this week, we look at God's patient love love through kindness. So not only is love patient, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 that love is kind. How many of you believe that there needs to be more kindness in the world today? Very much so, right? Uh, Especially in our politics, in our nation, uh, it's really ugly. And, And because of the ugly nature of the world, how much more pertinent and necessary is God's love through kindness? How does that need to be shown through God's people? Sometimes, though, God's people can be very ugly and mean, hurtful, vindictive. They don't learn the art of speaking the truth in love. Instead, they just speak the truth. Well, I'm just telling you the truth, right? That's what I hear often. Well, I just, I just told them the truth. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, yes, but there's a caveat. It's through the acts of love. And I didn't say through the feeling or emotion of love, but through the act of love, we can express kindness. So in order to do that, we're going to be looking at the four chapters of Ruth. Ruth is just after what we call the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Joshua Judges comes after that and then the book of Ruth. And it's really a blip on the radar, honestly, right after uh, Judges, which is a big book packed with a lot of good stuff. But we come to the, uh, the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. We're going to look at the four chapters, one a week through the month of February. So what does it mean to be kind? I looked up the definition uh, in our English language because uh, I wanted to really hone in on the definition of kindness. And kindness is this. It's actually an adjective. And it means of good or benevolent nature or disposition. A kind and loving person is, is, is what, it, what it really stands for. So what do we see in the book of Ruth? How do we see kindness? So one of the things about the book of Ruth is it's obviously there's Bible studies galore on the book of Ruth, on loyalty, on overcoming difficulties, on grief, on multiple different levels. But this idea of kindness 
is oftentimes overlooked. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are Bible studies on the book of Ruth that concentrate on the kindness all the way through Ruth. But I want to look at kindness from the perspective of the individuals in Ruth. So let's look at Ruth chapter 1 this morning. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So, so a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech. Say that three times fast. So that should be some new names for your kids. If you're having babies, what's your kid's name? Elimelech. And his wife was Naomi. Now we know that one, Naomi Judd or Naomi... Watson? Hannibal? I'm sorry. People are shouting things out. I can't hear very well these days. Their two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. There's some more good names for you to name your kids. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Okay, let's stop. What's going on? What's the setting? What's the context? Here's the setting, the context, and here's what's happening in this situation. So this is a time period before there was a king in the land of Israel. There were judges in the land of Israel. So God was the king of the people, and there were judges put in place, men and women, and we can talk about men and women all you want to, but there are women leaders in the Bible. Don't be hurling rotten tomatoes at me. But there were women judges as much as men judges, and these rulers would stand on behalf of God interpreting the law of Moses, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And they were military leaders. They were, uh, they were people that actually uh, determined cases in a court of law before there were kings. Saul ended up being the first king of, of, of Israel, and we find that in First and Second Samuel and also First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles later on. But right now, in this time period, in the book of Ruth, they're living during the time of the judges, more, more than likely toward the later part of that just to give you a picture of what's happening. Where's Moab? What is Moab? It sounds like a bad wart. It's actually a place in the Old Testament. There were people called Moab, Moabites, all right? Where does Moab come from? Well, Moab is descended from Lot's two daughters and Lot. Are you familiar with Lot? Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay. Well, when, when Abraham went and helped, or when the angel of the Lord went and helped Lot get out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed, Lot's wife turned back, and what did she become? Salt, and not the good kind. All right? She became a pillar of salt, according to the text. So he was left wifeless. So he's now left with his two daughters, and they move along, they settle. This is in scripture. They had no one to have children with or to have heirs. So they got their father drunk. And guess what? They had children. Listen, I'm telling you, if you read the Bible, you're going to find some amazing stuff in there. Better than what you'd find on TV. All right? They got their father drunk. And they slept with him. And each of the daughters 
bore children. One of the descendants actually was Moab. He became, built this region where there's now a nation called Moab during this time period. And so in the land of Israel, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons are needing food. They move to a place where food is in abundance, Moab, and this is what's going on in the story. But let's, let's not stick on that too much. I just want to give you some background and some setting. Then, in verse 3, Elimelech died. Well, that was quick. Actually, this is a period of multiple years going on here. Probably about a decade of time is happening. Elimelech dies in that time period, and Naomi's left with her two sons. The two sons marry Moabite women. Now, that's forbidden in the law of Moses. They are to marry Israelite women because God's commands in the Old Testament, in the, especially the, the laws of Moses, were the Israelite men were to only marry Israelite women. So they marry Moabite women. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. One married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah. Don't get that mixed up. And the other, a woman named Ruth. But they, about 10 years later, both Mahalon and Kilion died. Oh my goodness. This woman has gone through the ringer. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. That's a big deal in that culture. It's a big deal today because of the grief and the heavy weight, but I'm telling you, we'll get into the historical aspect of this in a minute. She was up a creek, I'm telling you. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed the people in Judah, which is in Israel, by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, they sent out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, why don't you go back to your mother's homes? And may the Lord reward you for the kindness that you are husband, uh, to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage, because they were still young enough to bear children. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. This is all that they had known up to this point. This is a big part of Naomi's life up to this point. And yes, they had good relationships as in-laws which can't often be said, even in that day and age. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. Now think about this. Were the Moabite people welcomed in Jerusalem or in the, in the area of Judah or Bethlehem or Israel? No, not good. But they were willing to sacrifice their, their being liked in order to stay with Naomi. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons that could grow up and be your husbands? What? This is what I'm talking about. In order to understand Ruth and the context, there were certain cultural norms that you have to understand too because they were to be married by other brothers of, the ones, of their husbands. So if your husband died and there was a brother in the family on that same side that could take you as his wife, that was his duty to do so. Okay, so she's going there and she's saying, can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up and be your husbands? She is beyond her childbearing years. 
No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I'm too old to marry again. And she's basically telling them, if you go with me, you're not going to be able to remarry. It's just not going to happen. If you go back to your own homes, surely you could be betrothed to somebody else through one of your family lines or somewhere in your community. But if you go with me, it's hopeless. You're basically going to be a widow for the rest of your life. It's basically what she's telling them. And she goes on, and even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course not, my daughters. Things are far better for me than they are for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt like you're in a situation where you're praying and you're praying, God, help me, God, take me out of this situation, cure this disease, help my job, get this addiction off my shoulders, or whatever the case may be, repair my marriage, and it's not happening. And it feels like the Lord's fist is against you. Well, this is what's going on in Naomi's life. She's lost her husband that she thought she was going to spend even longer years with beyond what they had together. And she's lost her two only sons. Can't imagine losing a child. Some of you know that reality. And it feels like death is so encroached upon you that it's crushing in like a weight that you can't bear. This is what Ruth is experiencing. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi, even after Orpah had gone on. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Have you ever said that to your (laughs) mother-in-law? When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, which is where their hometown, well, Naomi's hometown was, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Actually, they're welcoming her back. They're excited she's back. After so long, is it really you? And what did she say? Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Mara means bitter. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Don't call me blessed. Don't call me happy. You don't know what I am going through. You don't know the difficulties I'm facing. You think I'm blessed? You think I'm happy? No, I'm actually pretty bitter. Yeah, the Lord's raised his fist against me. He and I have some bad blood between us for some reason, and I'm being punished for whatever the case may be. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such a tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring and at the beginning of the barley harvest. What in the world is going on here? Why did this book make it into the canon of Scripture? What can we learn from the context of these four chapters in this small book in the Old Testament? The key point I want us to be able to take away today as I kind of really mold over this first chapter is this. True kindness takes no thought for self, but instead pours life into others. If love is kind, and it's that agape kind of love that is kind, then it is selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional kindness. It's not kindness that's given only when it's deserved. It's kindness that's given even when it's not deserved. It's the kind of kindness you give to somebody and show to somebody even when nobody else is looking. You don't get a pat on the back. You don't get a plaque on a pew or in a Bible. You don't get a monument down in the center of town for this kind of kindness. This kind of kindness where love is kind doesn't seek qualification, representation, or any kind of accolade. It's a kind of kindness that gives without expectation. And it gives in abundance. So what are the points we look at quickly today, this morning? Is the kindness of Naomi toward her daughter-in-law. Why, why, why was the act of Naomi a kind act toward Orpah and Ruth by telling them to go back to your own homes? Now, she could have demanded they stay with her. And they were ready to do that. They knew culturally they were going to have to stick it out together. They were going to have to stay together. But then Naomi says something partway down the road. They, 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 head back, they head back to Bethlehem. And it's a long walk. Partway down the road, Naomi stops as if kind of have been pondering in thought for a mile or two. Ladies, I, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> There's more for you back home than there is where we're going. I know how people think about your kind where I live. I know that you're not respected. You're not going to be treated well. Chances of you getting married in the land of Israel aren't great. You're basically going to be widowed for the rest of your life, and then what are you going to do when I die? I mean, I can't provide for you now, but what are you going to do when I die? You're going to be two Moabite women left alone in a foreign country that's not your own where you're not accepted or wanted. She says, you need to go back home. You have a second chance at life. I don't anymore. My childbearing years are gone. I can't produce another heir that would take care of me in my old age. That's it. It's all I've got. So go home. That was an act of kindness that was undeserved and unwarranted for Naomi, but she gave it to her daughters-in-law. Let's consider this cultural and historical context and the setting for this passage. Being a widow in the time period that Naomi and her daughters-in-law lived was a bit different than it is now. We have several widows here this morning and widowers. 
Women relied on the men in their lives to provide for them and to give them security. We don't have that concern today. In some situations we do, but we live in a society where women hold equal status in the workplace and in other places as men do, and they can earn a living, they can earn job, uh, job security, those kind of things. In ancient Israel, women could work outside of the home. They kind of were expected to, but it was more for the home that they worked than, than it was for livelihood. In ancient Israel, as well as in Moab, where Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah were, uh, women enjoyed the status of these three things. You could either be a, a daughter, a wife, or a mother. Those, those were the vocations available to women in that day and age. These women upheld the honor of their households by their fidelity or sexual behavior and their fertility and ability to bear children. That was what the woman's worth was. Now, it doesn't mean that women were treated horribly. There were men that loved their wives and treated them with the utmost respect. But I'm telling you the cultural norms of that day and age so you can understand this first chapter of Ruth. Mothers were expected to remain sexually inactive after the deaths of their husbands and to live with the heirs with whom they had given birth. And the heirs weren't the women they had given birth to, but only the men, because the men in society were able to provide for their mothers. They could not remarry if their husband had died without an heir until they had conceived an heir with their legal guardian. What does that mean? Naomi, Naomi's husband died. She had two heirs, Malon and Kilion. They were to take care of her. But what happened to them? They died. And what does this law say? They could not remarry if their husband had died without an heir until they had conceived an heir with their legal guardian. So who was, who was basically Naomi's legal guardian? All of her heirs were gone. And it said she could not remarry. Now, let's consider Naomi's situation. She was beyond her child-rearing years due to her age. Her two heirs, her only sons, had died. And according to the law, she was unable to remarry after the death of her husband, Elimelech, because she had no direct heirs and was unable to conceive a child with the closest legal guardian, which was in Bethlehem, which would have more than likely been Elimelech's brothers. Women in Naomi's position were considered liminal. Do you know what the word liminal means? So in that culture, in that context, there was a status for women in Naomi's situation. Liminal. And it means this, homeless. They were homeless. They had no heirs. They had nobody to take care of them. Naomi's on her way back with her two daughters-in-law, and she's realizing the situation and the gravity of her situation and what that's going to mean for her daughters-in-law, and she doesn't want to punish them the way that God is punishing her, so to speak. And so she says, Orpah, Ruth, go back home. I'm going to be homeless in the land I'm going back to. Yeah, people will know me. I'll make it okay, but I'm still going to be homeless. I have nobody to care for me, so I'm going to have to bust my hump to do what I can to earn a living and to at least eat and have a place to lay my head at night. Go to the New Testament with me real quick. I can't tell you the It's in Luke. I'll tell you that much. I think it's chapter 18. Don't quote me on that. Some of you who are listening online will probably say, it's not there. But it's the, it's the parable of the persistent widow. Have you ever heard of the parable of the persistent widow? 
She goes before the judge, demanding her time in court. Give me my land. There was a, the, the widows could go demand their, their rights as women in the land, Israelite women, for the land that was a part of their family structure so that they could at least have some livelihood. So the homeless widows, the liminal widows could go back and demand, I need my time in court. I need the court to be fair to me. And so this persistent widow in the New Testament and the parable that Jesus is telling is much like Naomi. They could go back and they could demand, I want a hearing, I want a hearing, I want a hearing, so much so that the judge in the New Testament does what? I'm sick of hearing this lady. She's constantly demanding. But she's doing what was necessary. And because she was persistent, not nagging, it wasn't nagging in that day and age, it was persistence in doing what was right by the law, reminding the judge, this is what the law states. Though I'm liminal, though I'm homeless, I'm still required certain rights under the law. And the persistent widow, because she's persistent and doesn't give up, is helped by the judge because of her persistence. So now consider Naomi's response to the last part of chapter 1. She comes back to Israel, settles in the land, this small village called Bethlehem. Hey, that seems familiar. Just about a month ago we were there. Do you remember? Bethlehem. Who was born in Bethlehem? Who? Jesus, Jesus was, but who else? One of his descendants. David. David, one of his ancestors. It's a pretty important town to be so small. She comes back into Bethlehem. The people are excited. Oh, Naomi's back home. Is it really you? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has made my life very bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? I'm not where I thought I would be this, this stage of my life. I work all my life. I'm a faithful wife, faithfully, sexually pure to one husband all my days. I've made a good home. And now in my older years, this is what I have to show for it. You, you call me blessed among women as Naomi, but I'm not blessed. I'm cursed. Some of you are in a place of discouragement this morning. Some of you have lost loved ones just recently, like Kat mentioned in her video. That's just left you devastated. You've prayed, God, heal them, bring them back to health till you're blue in the face. And then when they pass, you wonder, God, did you not hear me? Where were you in the midst of all the struggle, the hurt, the pain, the difficulty? Uh, why weren't you there? She had forgotten what the... Uh, 
She had forgotten what it meant to live with hope. You see, it's interesting. When everything's going our way, do we really have a whole lot of reason for faith? When I get everything I want, when I want it, is there a reason for me to have faith? Think about that. It's only when the tough times come that rock the boat, that difficulty comes, and it doesn't feel like anybody cares, even God himself, that our faith is tested. And you realize how deep the root of faith goes in your life. And it's not that God is up there toying around and messing with your mind, saying, oh, I'm going to zap them here, I'm going to do that there. See, we live in a fallen world that's broken. It's got disease, it's got natural disasters. God didn't create that from the very beginning. What What did God create? Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. He created a perfect world, and each day he created, at the end of the day, what did he say about each day? He looked at everything he'd created, and he said, man, that's good. And God's good is best. There's nothing better than God's good. Keep that in mind. So what is worse than God's good is something God didn't create. And what happened in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve did what God said not to do, and it opened this Pandora's box of evil, sin, and death. God didn't create death. Death is a result of sin and disregarding God's commands, disobedience. And so we have this place in Scripture where we see it's perfect, it is good, and then we see it's bad. But even in the midst of all the bad, God is there. What does God do as one act of grace and kindness as he's kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden? What were they in the garden? They were naked. And what happens as he's kicking them out of the garden and putting angels with flaming swords to keep them coming back into the garden? He clothes them with animal skins to protect them from the elements. God gets a bad rap. He's a bitter, mean, old, angry man up there just waiting to zap me around each corner when I do something wrong. But here's the funny thing. Yes, he is good, he is just, he is holy, but he's also loving. Though he says, listen, there's going to be punishment for this. I'm also going to see you through it. I'm going to cover you because I love you. I'm not going to agree that what you did was okay or what you're doing is okay, but I'm still going to love you regardless of it. You can reject me to, the, to your last breath, and you could be separated from me for an eternity, but that's not what I want for you. So what did Naomi forget in this whole passage? She forgot this, and it's not that this had been written yet. This would come later. It's something that we've been given that Naomi wasn't given as a reminder, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, We can fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. That's a promise. For the believer in Christ, even for the non-believer, there's a God who seeks to walk beside you. He's knocking at your door. He says, listen, let me come in. I, 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 I want to show you how much I love you. It's through God's kindness that many are led to repentance. What about the second part of this? It's Ruth's kindness toward her mother-in-law. Ruth's kindness toward her mother-in-law. And this is real short, but I want you to see this because we're going to be expanding on this as the weeks come. What we know from the narrative in Ruth 
chapter 1 is that Orpha went back home in tears, brokenhearted, but realizing that her only chance of survival, more than likely, was to go back home and remarry someone from her hometown. Someone, her dad, because she went back under the, uh, under the auspices or the leadership of her father's home, and then he would betroth her to someone else. So here's what we have. We have her going back home, and Naomi is now going, or Ruth is now going with Naomi. Ruth wouldn't accept the offer to go back home. Why was this a kind gesture? Why was Ruth's, why was Ruth's refusal to go back home a kind gesture to Naomi? Because Ruth loved Naomi. See, kindness takes no thought for self, but always gives life to another. And Ruth knew that in going with Naomi, there was probably no possibility for her to ever remarry again. She was going to be an old maid someday. No descendants, no heirs to care for her. When Naomi died, she was going to be left liminal just like her mother-in-law, meaning homeless, and she would have to work her tail off to somehow make a way and hopefully depend on the malevolence of others in a town where she was a foreigner. Ruth was willing to give up everything that she had left, the possibility of remarriage, hope for a better future, the desire for something more. She was still young, still capable of bearing children. She had prospective opportunities that Naomi would never have again. But she was more than willing to give all of that up because of her loving kindness toward her mother-in-law. That's a hard decision when you're put in that kind of a position. What do I do? What we'll see in the coming weeks is though Ruth had given up everything, she would gain everything in return. Now, is this a method to the prosperity gospel? No. Well, it happened for Ruth. She gave up everything and she gained everything. You know what she gained? She gained respect and honor. She gained, she gained hope in a way that we may never understand. Because we hope for things that we'll get in this life. Ruth's hope was for things beyond this life. Because she realized it's not about me. I love my mother-in-law. I want to be there with her. She shouldn't have to go through this alone. And I'll let the cards fall where they may. I don't know what that means for me. But I love her. And I care for her. She's done nothing but good for me. And even if she hasn't always been perfect, I still love her. And I'm still going to go there with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I want to be buried too. I'm not going back home. I close with this. How many of you remember William McKinley, President of the United States? Were you born? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nobody, but if you're that old, <laughs> you're in the Guinness Book of World Records. 
Listen, when William McKinley was president of the United States, he had to make a decision about an appointment of an ambassador to a foreign country. So every president makes appointments to different cabinets, different places, different positions. <laughs> so he had this foreign country that he was looking to put an ambassador in this role of. And there were two guys that he was looking at, two equally qualified candidates. So McKinley was still a congressman. He, he had observed when he was still a congressman both of these two guys in different situations. He recalled boarding a streetcar one time uh, at rush hour and, and getting the last vacant seat on the train. Soon there, there was an elderly woman, however, that got on the train carrying this huge, heavy clothes basket, and no one got up to offer this lady a seat. So she walked the length of the car, stood in the aisle, hardly able to keep her balance as the vehicle swayed from side to side. One of the men McKinley was later to consider for the ambassador to this position to a foreign country was sitting right next to where the woman was standing. And instead of getting up and helping her, he deliberately shifted his newspaper so it would look like he hadn't seen her. So when McKinley noticed this, he walked down the aisle, graciously took the basket from the lady and offered her his seat. The man was unaware that anyone was watching, but that one little act of selfishness would later deprive him of perhaps the most crowning honor of his lifetime. Why do we hold back kindness when opportunities present themselves for acts of benevolence? Is it selfishness on our part? Is it for lack of time or something else completely? And I want you to know, well, who are we to be kind to? As I close this morning, who, who, am I only to be kind to those who are kind to me? Okay, what does Jesus tell us about love? If love, if kindness is a, de is a definition of love and love is kind, what does God say through Jesus Christ about love? We are to love our enemies so now let's put, are we to be kind to our enemies? Yeah. Yes, we are. Well, how am I supposed to be kind to my enemy? They won't even let me get near them, and I don't want to be anyway. Well, as opportunities present themselves, and they will, and you can be kind to somebody without even being near them. I can come up to you and talk to you about the person that's my enemy right and they're saying oh they're a horrible person aren't they and what do we want to do you bet they are you know what they did to me oh I can't stand that person have you ever said that I can't stand them they're horrible you know we can show kindness even when the person isn't in the room by saying you know what now they may not be perfect none of us are God loves them, and so do I. But didn't they hurt you? Didn't they betray you? Didn't they fill in the blank? Yeah. But I'm not bound or controlled by what they did to me. That's on them. I still love them. I don't agree with them. I still love them. And I'm not going to speak ill about them. I'm not going to talk down about them to their face or behind their back because I love them and I care that they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life too. Do we hold back kindness for lack of time 
Well, I'm too busy. I mean, if I had more time, I would get up and let this lady sit in my seat. Or if I had more time, I'd stop and help that person. If I had more time, I, I would rake my neighbor's sleeves. If I had more time, I'd visit this person in the hospital or this shut-in in, in, in the home. I, I just don't have enough time, Brandon. Is it something else completely? Kindness was the key in both of these decisions with Naomi and Ruth. And we can learn a powerful lesson from them today. Are you kind? Are you willing to give when no one else does? Are you willing to reach out and help when others are in need? Are you willing to give when no one else sees? What a random act of kindness can you, what random act of kindness can you do this week? If you're in school or in college, you're seeing a kid getting picked on, and you know if you go over and help out in any way, you're going to get picked on too because this is the outcast in the school. They're weird. They're weird people, Brandon. You don't understand. I, I do understand. There were people like that when I was in school, believe it or not. I was one of those weird people. <laughs> you were too, Christy. <clears throat> How can you be kind to someone in your life this week? As our worship team comes forward to close us out this morning, true kindness takes no thought for self, but instead pours life into others. What opportunities are you being given on a daily basis? But for lack of time, lack of desire, you're passing them by. And when God is saying, no, 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 I want you to stop. I want you to take time. I want you to act in loving kindness to someone else. We want them to do that to us, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Again, this morning, if you want to pray by yourself and let nobody, you don't want anybody to pray with you, we have an altar to my left, your right. Come and pray and spend time with the, with the Lord alone. If you want somebody to pray with you, we have people that, that will pray with you to my right, your left. And we also have a prayer board. If you're struggling and you want to circle a prayer and stay on that prayer until God answers it, either with a yes or a no, we have uh, papers over there. You can write that on there and tack it up there. Stake your claim and say, this is what I'm going to pray until God answers. And as God answers, I want you to feel the courage to come up and flip it over and say, God has answered my prayer. Maybe not in the way I wanted it, but he was faithful to answer. And I know his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are so much higher than mine. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Even when nothing is good in us, as the song states. You give us hope and encouragement. And sometimes it feels like you're not even there. And we become very bitter and discouraged. Remind us that you're aware of every situation in our lives. Give us hope, even when all hope is gone, like Naomi and Ruth, who had seemingly lost everything. Help us to remember that you're aware of that and that, God, through your faithfulness, we can be provided for in ways that blow our minds. 
Help us to never sink so low in our discouragement that we forget to be kind to others because we're so bitter and resentful. Help us not to get to that point and to remind the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He has no control over our emotions, over our lives, over circumstances or situations. As children of God, we surrender all to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.